Good morning, and welcome to North Shore. Uh, how are we doing? All right. Uh, so here's what happened. We are on a journey through our statement of faith and turning it into uh, this part of the sermon series. So a little deeper dive into unpacking uh, just some core truths about the gospel, about God, about Jesus, about Holy Spirit, about all of us. And uh, so as these things are getting divvied up and, and we're looking at um, where they're going as sermons, we, we were able to package the first little chunk together, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we can bring out Sanjay, who has a PhD in the Trinity. This is incredible. Look how God works. Then the next week is mankind, the fall and redemption. Well, man, that's the whole gospel story. Off we go, Pat. Isn't it incredible how God works? And then we get sanctification, spiritual gifts, and the church, and a bunch of chaos. So here you go, youth pastor. Isn't it incredible how God works? Um, so here we go. Uh, these are three very important but you know, deep, detailed theological points. And so I made something for you guys. I made a little chart. This is, we're going to try to uh, get there and not have it be three mini sermons. So you got sanctification, you got spiritual gifts, you got the church, and in the middle here is a little bit of a sweet spot. So we're going to try to tie all these together. Here's my outline. So that's this part in the middle. I don't usually give the whole thing up front. But here is a simple outline for kind of processing these three really big ideas this morning. The Holy Spirit changes the Christian in two ways. One is sanctification. He makes me more like Jesus Christ. And the second is spiritual gifts. He has given me skills and abilities to balance out with others for holistic growth. And in my experience, and I, and I think the teaching of the New Testament, these both happen primarily within the context of the church. You don't grow best in isolation. You can't exercise spiritual gifts in isolation. So here's where we're going with that. Um, the, the team's going to come forward with Bibles and Statement of Faith. I will say this would be really helpful to have this morning. So we've been printing these. I'm going to try to refer to several of the scriptures that are in the appendix here. So it's on our app. It's on the website. You can also grab one for right now. That will be really helpful. And I'll say if you already have one at home, like take one now, but don't take it with you. We're not trying to send a thousand of these into Snohomish County. Um, but it will be helpful for reference. So here is our first point from the statement of faith, sanctification. We believe God calls us to be holy because he is holy. The process of becoming holy, known as sanctification, is God's will for every believer. This is a work of God uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and Scripture, rooted in relationship with the local church body, making the believer more and more Christ-like. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer at the moment of their conversion and regeneration. He then begins the progressive work of bringing the believer to total commitment and dedication to holiness and Christ-like character and living, a process that is completed upon our glorification. Wahoo. All right. 
let's start here with a little bit of clarification. Let's, let's define holy. So you'll notice right away this, this big topic, this theme concept is called sanctification, but right away it gets connected. The process of becoming holy is known as sanctification. All right, so to become holy, sanctification exists at a, as a word because holification is just not a good word um, that doesn't help anybody. And so sanctification, it's connected to sanctity, the sacredness of something. And so this idea of becoming more holy, that's what we're talking about. What does it mean for you and I to become more holy? Holy. Holy first makes its appearance in the Old Testament. Uh, it, it means to be set apart, to set aside for a distinct purpose, for a distinct use. It's used of God uh, early in Genesis, and it's, it's referring to God as being separate than creation. Right, so you can kind of understand, God is, there's something different about God. God has a distinct godness that the rest of the created world doesn't have. God is different. God is set apart. It's an extremely complicated word, but, but I do love that um, throughout the scriptures, it's used enough and, and we get a sense that it's an important word and that has continued to this day. I love actually the fact that we sing it a lot. Holy is in a lot of our worship songs. And many times it's even in the, the trifold use from Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's an important word. It refers to qualities that God possesses. And yet, here's an interesting thing. So this is the first verse under the uh, appendix in sanctification. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So wow, we've got this sense that it, it relates strongly to who God is and to be set apart, to be different. And yet, we're called to be holy, and even specifically, in your conduct, so to live that way, what we do, um, to get rid of behavior stuff in your life that is ungodlike, and to gain more stuff, behavior in your life that is godlike, is what we are being called into here. And you could just just reflect on your own this last week as uh, the Lord may bring examples to mind. What's something you've seen in your own life this week that reflects the character of God? What's something you've seen in your own life this week that doesn't? And that's what we're talking about. The idea here is synonymous with spiritual maturity. It is growth over time that we never fully arrive at but are being constantly made more like Jesus. That's Romans 8.29, that we are predestined to be uh, conformed to the image of God's Son, that we are constantly being made to look more like Jesus. And so that places us in this really interesting reality. There are not levels to Christianity. 
There's no tier system of saved or less saved or loved or less loved. It is by grace through faith that we are uh, saved. Jesus Christ accomplishes that for us. There's no A plus Christians and C Christians. However, there's a very true reality as we look around. There's a difference in Jesus' likeness in behavior from person to person. Sanctification. The Bible informs us that to live in relationship with Jesus means over time your behavior should change. But Christianity is absolutely, unapologetically, irrevocably, some otherly, not behavior modification. It's just not. Uh, there's, a, there's a chart to help us kind of process this, to indicate this. Um, so we're, we're kind of conditioned and encouraged and, and just naturally inclined to think um, along the lines of the left circle at times, right? So if I, if I change a behavior, then that will influence me and, and shape who I am. This is why uh, New Year's resolutions exist, right? I'm going to do something and that will make a difference in my life. We work from the outside in, and yet, if you've ever tried that and failed, or if you've ever tried to break a habit and struggled, or any number of real life experiences, and neuroscience will very much back this up, that is an extremely difficult way to make sustainable, permanent, impacting change. Whereas if you're changed from the inside, if your identity is impacted, your, your core values, what you believe in, that change impacts process. The way we view the world, your, your worldview, your, your, your behavior comes then after that. Jesus reveals that his work is not from outside in. It's actually from inside out. Sanctification does not start at behavior. It starts at the heart. This is not about doing different, but being different. Only as we allow God to change our heart, our values, our identity, does real, lasting change happen. Now, here's the crazy part. You could take a Bible verse and start at either end of the circle, right? You could take a Bible verse. The Bible says, do not lie. Okay, I won't lie. I will not lie. I will not lie. And then something good will happen if I don't lie. And, and that's an outside-in way of thinking about it. But the way that Jesus teaches and the, the totality of the gospel demonstrates that that's not, not actually it. Inside out. Matthew chapter 5 couple examples here. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. This is my favorite teaching from Jesus. And he goes through some Old Testament law and watch what he does. This is just two of them. So here's Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a different standard. That's a different bar. And here's another one in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, 
do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus is saying you can see the behavior, and if you have your Bibles open, uh, you can see all the different categories that he applies this reversal to, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies. He says, you see the behavior, but I am after the heart. Jesus isn't saying do better. He's saying be transformed. This is, is the hard work of Christianity. Real talk, this, this is where the emotional, this is where the battle takes place. The back and forth of, man, this is hard. I imagine humility and sanctification are the two topics most where the pastor says, you want me to get up there and talk about that? I'm not there yet. Romans chapter 7 is an incredibly detailed example of, I want to do better, but it is so hard. This is the battleground against sin. This is real work. Um, just a short example from my own life of even just trying to process this. It was, it was a number of years after high school that I even realized that I'd been part of a youth group that helped fan into flames something that was definitely already within me, but the culture around me helped kind of bring this, this attitude to life of, of elitism and, and being overly opinionated and judgmental thoughts. And so I, I, I took on this mantra of, man, I, I loved what I was learning about the Bible and it was, theology was exciting and to learn all this stuff. And, and then what it started to do was to create judgmentalness towards others. And it has been a battle to figure out how do I hold something uh, with, with passion and yet not look down on someone else because of a different opinion to not think less of a disagreement, to learn from somebody else's perspective. And that goes on all the time. It's one thing to say don't judge others. It's another to walk that out every day at the heart level. So there's kind of a, of a what, what we're talking about, what that looks like. What about How? What is the mechanism for this process? My, my favorite verse along these lines is Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. I think we have that available on the screen as well. Um, but Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Who works? You work. Who works? God works. Did you see that? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, comma, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Sanctification is a mysterious partnership. It is God and it is me. And we acknowledge there are things that only God can do. And I, I like to pray along those lines sometimes. God, do what only you can do. And yet, 
God often doesn't do it if, if I don't join in. Sanctification is not sit on the couch and hope God transforms me. Pick your analogy here. Vitamins don't work if you don't take them. You could sit around and think about music all day. You will never improve if you don't practice. When you get a grade at the end of a class, who's responsible for that grade? Your teacher, sure, but so are you. There's a lot of imperfect metaphors that kind of press up against what we're talking about here. 1 Timothy 4 says it this way, physical training is of some value, but training in godliness has value for all things. And so we partner with the Holy Spirit as he transforms, does what only God can do through my own effort in spiritual disciplines, in humble and honest prayer. God, I need your help in this area. Through listening to the feedback and maybe even critique or constructive criticism of others. God begins to do a work in us, not from outside in, but from inside out. Not to where I don't sin, but I don't want to sin. Not striving for doing good, but to where I love to do good. That's the transformation that Jesus is after. And so, in the spiritual world, we, we believe that there's more uh, that the Holy Spirit accomplishes for the believer. And so we're going to turn the page to a second thing here. Now, I fully recognize that each one of these may leave you with more questions because this is just a snippet of what we're talking about. So one pitch invitation here, November 12th, that, that's a Sunday. Uh, that evening is the celebration of membership after we finish this series. And so there'll be an opportunity to become a member and, and to even... Uh, voice or, or uh, hear some of your questions in that context. And so if there's things that we just will not be able to touch this morning on one of these, um, I would encourage you to come to that or uh, email Scott. And so that will be great uh, at northshorechristian.org. Anyway, spiritual gifts. We believe the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to all believers that differ according to his will and God's grace for the purpose of building up the body of Christ and bringing glory to God. Each believer should desire these gifts, which are to be used according to the measure of faith given by God for the benefit of the church, exercised in love to foster spiritual growth, order, and unity within the body." So again, like last time, let's start with a little clarification and a little definition. Uh, what, what is a spiritual gift? It just kind of launches into it. What is a spiritual gift? What are we talking about? How many of you guys like, like online self-assessment things? You ever done like a Myers-Briggs or a DISC or an Enneagram or spiritual gifts or whatever? Where's the weirdos that have done like more than 15 of those? You're like, oh, this is super fun. We're just clicking bubbles. This is great. So if you Google spiritual gifts, you will get something like this. This is 
uh, probably the most popular page that lists these out. And then you, if you wander around, you can find a test and stuff. Um, but this is actually quite convenient because Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, these are the three primary passages in the New Testament that list out and describe spiritual gifts. And look at your little book. You'll see a lot of references to 1 Corinthians 12. That's probably the preeminent chapter on spiritual gifts in the church. And a bunch of them are listed there. So I want to read that first verse under the appendix here. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So what it is, it's a gift. How? It's empowered by God. And why? For the common good. So here's like a big theological definition, potentially, of a spiritual gift. Uh, an ability, talent, or disposition the Holy Spirit gives a Christian in order to build up the body of Christ. Now here, Tyler's layman's crass definition, something God made you good at that you can bless others with. One of my favorite spiritual gifts is actually not on that list. One of my favorite passages about spiritual gifts is not even from the New Testament. It's from Exodus chapter 35. So we're going way back early in Israel's history, and we have this for us as well. Then, then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship in order to build the tabernacle. This is cool. And what I love about this is this opens kind of a whole new category of giftings here. And my contention is that that list we looked at earlier, and Ben, you could probably put that one back up, um, when you go online and they just list these gifts, this is not exhaustive. This is a conversation about the types of things that you might see in people that God has given them as abilities. It was never meant to be exhaustive. And if you take an assessment, it's got to be one of these things and, and no more. Exodus 35, the Holy Spirit of God empowered a guy to be able to build something. And so he, with his hands, with his architectural skill, designed the tabernacle. And so you'll look around and notice that people aren't all the same. Some are better and worse at different things. Some of that's experience, sure. You can, you can practice and you can train and you can grow in some areas. But a lot of it is just how God made you. Some of it is by design and, and the hardwiring, the fingerprint of God. And, and 
your brain can, can process things in a way that somebody else will never be able to as much as they admire that in you. And, and, and you can't um, think of things in a way that somebody else does. I am an artist only in the sense that music has always made a lot of sense to me. But if you give me a writing utensil, I'm completely useless and nothing good comes of it. Uh, and it's a little embarrassing. I can't, I can't picture it. I can't draw it. No amount of practice has ever made me better. The continued metaphor that Paul uses throughout 1 Corinthians 12 is that of a body, a literal body. And he starts, he starts actually listing out body parts. And the question he asks is, what if the whole body was the nose? And the answer is, that would be weird and lame. So point one here of spiritual gifts, the the purpose, the point, spiritual gifts, God's perfect purpose is diversity. The purpose is diversity. It is better that we're not all the same. As much as differences here can cause incredible amount of division and frustration, it is better that we are not all the same. Point two, along the same lines, in whatever way that God has gifted you, he's also intended for you to be part in building his kingdom. God has blessed you to bless others. The point is not so much the gift. The point is its use. Uh, So to kind of ground this into into our theme this morning, um, I firmly believe that God has made each of us God has made you in a way that you are vital to the care and spiritual growth of somebody else. And God has made others to be vital to the care and spiritual growth for you. As much as sometimes it's appealing to just get a a group of five people around us that are very much like us and that's comfortable, that's not That's not all of this. That's not all of who God is. That's not all of what he needs and wants to speak into us. So maybe by way of example, um, I actually, spiritual gifts assessments are fun and all that. I don't think they're by any means the best way for you to discern your spiritual gifts. An online test is very cool, but it is not personal. It's not life on life. It's not relational. I think one of the primary ways that God helps us discern our spiritual gifts is in context of community with others. Man, get around people and start doing life. They will tell you what you're good at. Be in a community that's doing life together and needs will arise, possibly areas for you to step into, to help, to bring life to give something in a way that God has specially made you. I was having a a conversation in the back after the 9 a.m. service about this, and I'd forgotten about a story I wanted to share. And we were just talking about different ways that God made us. And uh, for me, I wanted to go do engineering, right? I've shared a little bit of that before, and that didn't work at all. Um, But one of the first things, a, a very strong memory I have was when I made this switch and I started exploring ministry, people started affirming things in me that had never happened before. They said, hey, we can understand 
when you teach, this is really cool. And for me, that was huge. That was a trajectory that led me to where I am right now of other people saying, hey, we see God doing this in you way more than anything else. The community of God helps us find our place in the community of God. And I want to add just this one piece into the conversation. There can unfortunately be a bit of pain around the area of spiritual gifts um, from, from people and stories I've heard over time who feel like they, they don't have a place to exercise their gift. And that can be a real thing and a real hurt. Uh, but this, this image that God was giving me this week was kind of along the lines of, of like the five love languages, if you've ever journeyed with that, and different ways that you can express love, different ways that you like to express love. So you can think of, if you're married, think of your spouse, but, but if not, it, it works in any type of relationship. And, and the point is this, you don't succeed by just giving the gift that you want to give. You succeed by giving the gift that's needed. Or wanted. So uh, my wife and I have this sometimes. There's a distinct moment. There's a distinct emotion my wife feels where in that moment she does not want to hug. And uh, when I feel that, I very much do want to hug. So we've had a lot of moments where I go and I want to give my wife a hug. And that's not what she wants in that moment. Uh, I get in trouble. And so um, I don't succeed by just giving what I want. My two-year-old loves to give gifts right now, specifically toast, out of her mouth. And so I take it and I hide it. You know, I'm trying to pretend I eat it. Um, but that's, that's just only the gift that she wants to give. It's very cute as a two-year-old. Um, but that's not what I want in that moment. And so what can happen sometimes if we approach this whole thing with an attitude of, this is my gift to give and nothing else, I think disappointment may follow but maybe a humbler look into what does God need me to do right now? What, where is God working? What's something I could step into? What's something somebody has said? Man, I hadn't thought of that before. Maybe I could be there. And so just a couple thoughts there on spiritual gifts. Um, and before we turn the page that's the end of this, and you will notice I did not talk about the miraculous gifts. Um, that's not where we have space and time for this morning. And so again, uh, later on throughout the membership process, there may be an opportunity uh, to talk about that, um, or you can email Scott. So here we go. To turn the page, I want to ground those things, those, those two, into kind of this third point here as we uh, hit our third section in the Statement of Faith. This is the church. We believe the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus has ordained his church as the representative of his kingdom here on earth to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to gather together regularly for the purpose of building up and preserving the body of believers to carry out God's plan of redemption. As believers, we are called to make disciples, to love one another, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and to teach and admonish one another with the wisdom that comes from the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. 
The church is both the family of God with members being adopted as children by the Father and living as brothers and sisters of Christ and also the body of Christ with Christ as the head and each member being a part and fulfilling their individual function as a direct reference to what we just talked about. The local body is shepherded through the Holy Spirit by the elders collectively under the authority and accountability of Jesus as the chief shepherd, elders exercise judgment in matters of doctrine, faith, practice, and the discipline of believers. This is the longest statement in our statement of faith. So just to sum it up and give us a a couple of lenses to process, uh, basically this question, What's the church? Who's the church? Uh, I want to give just a, a potential definition here. Three, three things that really stood out to me in this. The church is an identifiable people with an eternal purpose and a unique organization. So to sum up what was in our paragraph here, the church is an identifiable people with an eternal purpose and a unique organization. So identifiable people. What this bride thing means at the first sentence and, and this Ephesians 5 verse. So take a look. Again, this is the first verse that's referenced in the appendix here. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So bride of Christ in this incredible language of Ephesians 5, Jesus gave himself up for the church. This means that the church is the people whom Jesus bought with his blood. The church is Christians, all Christians, everywhere Christians, 2023 Christians, before there were internet Christians, 50 AD Christians, alive and dead Christians. You have more in common with a 10-year-old from a country in the Middle East who doesn't speak any English, if they have called on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you do with your same demographic next-door neighbor if they don't know the Lord. It's that important, the essence of being changed and renewed and made into a new person by Jesus Christ. So that's the church. But also, sentence three, when we gather together regularly, that's also the church. So it seems like there's two categories for processing this. You may have heard this before. Introduce a couple of words for processing this. This is uh, the invisible and the visible church. A couple of ways of, 
of Hanalias. I wanted to put this on screen for two reasons. One, to prove I did not make that term up. Um, but also, if you've never been to gotquestions.org, it's really good. Um, it's a great resource for handling theological questions of all kinds and loaded with scripture. So you can see kind of where they're pulling different things from. But that's one of the questions on there is, is this. What's, what are we talking about? Visible and invisible church. Those are the two categories I referred to. So when we say church, and the Bible refers to the church as both of these things, and it will just say church, but it's talking about both these concepts. On the one hand, the invisible church, anyone that's ever placed saving faith in Jesus Christ, living dead next door neighbor on the other side of the world, that's the church. And it's amazing. It is a global movement across generations for 2,000 years. People have been following Jesus Christ. That's the church. But also, when we come at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on a Sunday to 5700 23rd Drive, whatever, Everett, something, something, this is also the church. A specific portion of the church. This is the visible church. This is our church. Now I want to make a claim. You need both. In fact, one barely means anything without the other. That might seem obvious, but I'd never actually thought of it that way until I was just staring at the statement of faith all week. You need both. What if we had the invisible church, but no gatherings? Have you ever tried to carry a mattress upstairs by yourself? Like you help somebody move or try to have not somebody help you move, right? It's just so hard. And it's not just the weight, even though some of them are super heavy. Like it's very awkward and you can maybe push it up some carpet if you're lucky, but then you got to go around a corner. It's a disaster. But you get two or three people and eep, boop, there you go. Way different. Uh, one more example. This is, I don't know if anyone from here has been here, but this is the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California. I used to live down there, so I got to tour it a couple times. A uh, very, very strange place built by Sarah Winchester the, with the rifles and all that. Um, but yeah, there's doors that go nowhere and all kinds of crazy staircases and stuff. But I wanted to grab one specifically with that picture on the bottom right. There's really, really intricate wood flooring in a number of rooms in this house. And uh, this memory I'll never forget, they told us on the tour, it could have been a small team of carpenters to take two to four months to do the floors, but instead she hired one guy for three years. So there's a difference when people come together. Some things are just made easier. Some things aren't even possible by yourself. God exists in community. Sanjay unpacked that for us a couple weeks ago as we looked at the Trinity. God calls Abram and says, I will make you into a nation. God tells Moses to build a place where his people will come to worship. God tells David to build the temple where the people will worship. Jesus tells his disciples the world will know they are Christians by their love for each other. Jesus tells his disciples that they are to go into all the world and make disciples. The church in Acts met together, the Bible says, constantly. The New Testament vividly describes the order and worship of the gatherings. And in the book of Revelation, at the end of things, when we get a glimpse of heaven, there are believers gathered together 
worshiping. The invisible church with no gatherings is a shell of what it's meant to be. It's a scattered people, lonely, disorganized, unable to rely on others. It is, in a sense, invisible, not in any kind of good way. So on the flip side, what if we had the visible church with no bride of Christ? It's almost a non-question. It doesn't really exist, but, but we see that in a lot of different things in our culture, right? We have that in our world. Any club, any team, any circle of coworkers or classmates or whatever it is, it is fundamentally different than all of this. Not just a little bit different. Oh, church makes me feel good. I feel like I should go there. No, it's fundamentally different than all of this because of the shared grace of Jesus Christ and the eternal mission that he has put us on. These two hours of your Sunday or an hour and a half of your Wednesday or whatever it is in a life group or in a community are all special because of Jesus Christ and his call on our lives. I want to grab this again because um, I said identifiable people and also an eternal mission. I love the language that is in the, the statement of the church. We are to gather regularly. Who is to gather? Yeah. As believers, we are called to make disciples. Who makes disciples? You can do it. I or me or we, whatever works. To love one another. Who loves one another? You're getting there. To submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Who submits to one another? Oh, we're getting better. To teach and admonish one another. Who teaches and admonishes? Yeah. With the wisdom that comes from the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. This eternal mission is for every single one of us. And I want to point to the organization of the church and then bring it back because I said those are the three things. So we have here, the church is the family of God with members being adopted as children by the Father, living as brothers and sisters of Christ and also the body of Christ. So here we go. With Christ as the head. So the head of the church is Jesus Christ. Some churches will use the language, our senior pastor or our lead worshiper is Jesus, trying to get at that concept. Jesus builds his church and each member being a part and fulfilling their individual function. The local body is shepherded through the Holy Spirit by the elders collectively under the authority and accountability of Jesus as chief shepherd Elders exercise judgment in matters of doctrine, faith, practice, and the discipline of believers. But I do want to drive this point home. There is Jesus Christ, and then there is a measure of authority appointed to elders and to the, the organized leadership of the church. And we have that here. We are an elder-led church. And yet, the Great Commission is not for the pastors. It does not stop at the elders. The command to love one another is not a thing for the professionals, this is for all of us. We, I, make disciples. I submit to one another. And so this is so much more than just coming and sitting in the seat 
If you do that and feel like the teachings of the church are disconnected, that is correct because that's not church. We got to do this together. So I want to ground this. The, the, the language of this being rooted in relationship was throughout this statement of faith. Do not neglect the visible church. So a couple questions for us to consider and process by, by way of um, walking this out. Application, next steps, if you will. Are you working out your sanctification in the community of believers? Are other people part of that very hard, very personal, very messy process of becoming more like Jesus, which is maybe a step forward, step back a bunch of times, then maybe two steps forward, one step back. Are other people part of that process with you? And second, similarly, have you, uh, will you commit to use your gifts to serve others and equally important to let others use their gifts to serve you? We are called into this as God's people, a special community that he's created. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, who you are and, and the fact that you have adopted people into your family. Man, that language is all throughout scripture. We are not isolated people just trying to follow Jesus. We are the family of God. And in all of its applications, Lord, would you, would you give us what we need to work that out? Um, give us courage. Give us knowledge. Help us fight through awkwardness. Whatever it is, God, we are in this for you. We're in this together. I ask that you would guide us in that. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen.